Well, hey, good morning. How we doing? Happy New Year. Welcome to 2022. Hey, question. Who's excited for a brand new year? Or are you just, okay, or are you just tired of the old year? Like, 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 it's kind of a little of both, isn't it? I'm trying to decide if I'm more excited that 2022 is here or I'm just glad to be done with 2021. Um, if you're observant this morning, you've probably picked up on the idea that we're starting a new sermon series. And it's going to be a book study. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians. We're going to be there really throughout the winter months. We're going to be in Ephesians all the way up until Easter. So do me a favor. If you've got a Bible in front of you, if you've got a phone, whatever you've got, get to Acts 19. Because <laughs> we're going to be in Acts 19 this morning as we start our series on Ephesians. I want to give you a little bit of background. In the book of Acts in chapter 19, we've got the establishment of the church in Ephesus. I want to start there. It's interesting, as I was thinking about preaching this morning, I was reminded that kind of throughout the history of our church, we've sometimes used the first Sunday of January as kind of a vision Sunday to communicate to the church where we think God's leading us, what we'd like to see God do um, in our church, in our community. And it's interesting, I was thinking back in 2014, um, I stood in this room and said, what we're praying, what we believe God's leading us to do is to plant more churches. And the problem was, even as I said it, we didn't know how that was going to come to be. Uh, that Sunday was also the first Sunday uh, that Eric Klingle came on staff as our 20s pastor. But we were saying we were playing that God would open some doors to allow us to plant churches. And it was interesting, over the course of the next few years, we were able to plant a church up in North Muskegon. We planted a couple of churches in Kenya, Africa. And what we sure didn't see on that Sunday in 2014 was that we would be planting years later a church in Fremont led by Pastor Eric Klingle. So God has sometimes responded to the vision. We stood in 2017 and said, we're praying that we can have another campus. This building at the time was starting to fill with three services. We were back meeting at International Aid for a 10 o'clock, and we were like, we'd love to have the opportunity for another campus. Within 15 days of that, we were meeting with Res Life Church out of Granville. The opportunity came up for our campus in Grand Haven, and it happened so quickly that there were a lot of people that came up to me and like, oh, you already knew about that. That was planned. That was a setup. It wasn't a setup. We gave a vision. We prayed as a church that God would open a door, and we've seen God respond to that in a lot of different ways. So as we start 2022, I'm kind of thinking in my head, what's, what's the vision? Where do we want to see God lead us as a church? Are there specifics that we should be asking for? Is there something general that we want to see God accomplish? And in the middle of this chapter, in verse 20 of Acts 19, it's actually where we're going to close the message today, is I think a pretty good summation of what my vision is for this church in 2022. It says in Acts 19.20, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Quite honestly, that's what I want for this church. That's what I want for my family. That's what I need for, for myself. To see God's word continue to transform lives. It's interesting as I read verse 20, the first word there, so the word of the Lord continued. Other translations have translated that verse um, therefore, because of, in this way, and what we're going to see is because of the things that happened in the beginning of chapter 19, because of these things, therefore, the word of the Lord increased and prevailed mightily. So what I want to do is spend our time this morning saying, what are the things that we 
saw Paul do in Ephesus? What are the signs? What are the things that lead to seeing God's word increase and prevail? It's a very simple message. It's just four points, four signs that the gospel is prevailing. Here's the first one. Jesus is central. Jesus is central. Look at Acts 19 verse 1. It says this, it says, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Now, the way that verse reads, at, at first glance, it's like, this, these kind of things just happened. They were, they were random. There's nothing random about what's going on here in verse 1. Paul is starting his third missionary journey. His second missionary journey, near the end of it, he had found himself in Ephesus. And the people had begged him to stay longer. He couldn't. He had to return. So as his third missionary's journey begins, he goes directly to Ephesus, and he's going to spend three years there, the longest place that he spends in any of the cities where he planted a church. Paul is on mission. He is at Ephesus as part of a mission. And his broader mission is this. Through these missionary journeys, Paul is planting churches up and down the coastlands in Asia Minor in major influential cities. And Ephesus was for sure one of those. Ephesus was home to what is considered one of the seven uh, ancient wonders of the world. It had a temple there to the goddess Artemis. It was a financial hub. It was a major city of importance in Asia Minor. And Paul was working through Asia Minor, planting churches in major cities with his eyes always set on getting to Rome. Paul was a man that was on mission. So I was thinking about that. I'm like, so 2022, what's our mission? What's my mission? Are we on mission? So I was thinking about my New Year's resolutions. Anybody here make New Year's resolutions? Any of you guys got those? Okay, any of them have to do with getting in like better shape or better health? Any of you guys there? How sweet is it when the New Year starts on a Saturday? Because you don't have to start those push-ups, sit-ups, gym visits, whatever, on Saturday because Saturday's a holiday. It's New Year's. That would be stupid, right? And then the next day is Sunday, which is the Lord's Day. It's the Sabbath, so you're not going to start it there. You get two free days. You don't even have to start till the third. I think it's awesome. So, so as you're considering your New Year's resolutions and the things that you want to see happen, maybe... You're going you're gonna to work harder. You want to see God do some things and maybe you want to move into a better house. Whatever those things are that are your New Year's resolutions, I would ask you to consider them for a minute. The big question this morning is simply this. Who is at the center of your resolutions? Who's at the center of your resolutions? I think sometimes when we look at our ambitions, our dreams, the things that we hope for in the coming year or years, it can be revealing. We can find out or realize who's at the center of our mission by examining our resolutions. So Paul is in Ephesus. He is on mission. Look at the end of verse 1. There he found some disciples. In verse 2, it says, Paul said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul said, then into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Verse 4, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that's kind of a weird exchange, wouldn't you agree? So Paul goes to Ephesus, he finds some disciples. If you were to go back and read the end of chapter 18, you'll find that another man by the name of Apollos spent some time teaching in Ephesus. 
He was a skilled teacher. He was a skilled debater. But it tells us that he didn't fully understand the gospel, that God would use two other people, Aquila and Priscilla, to give him a better understanding of the gospel. But we read in Acts 18.25 of Apollos that he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. So what's going on here in the book of Acts is there are men in Ephesus, probably men and women in Ephesus, under Apollos' teaching, they understand that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. They understand that they have a need for repentance, that they are sinners in need of a Savior, but all the dots are not connected that Jesus is that Savior. So Paul is picking up where Apollos left off, and he gives them more, greater, better understanding of who Jesus is. And on receiving this, they're baptized in the name of Jesus. Paul makes Jesus central to the gospel. He becomes the main thing. They understood that they had a problem, that they were sinners, that they needed to repent. They understood the problem. They didn't understand the remedy. Any preaching that doesn't confront us with our issue of sin and make Jesus the central remedy to that problem, well, it isn't gospel preaching. Churches get easily distracted. We can spend a lot of energy and all of our time planting other churches. That's a great thing. We can build orphanages and support orphans in Nepal. That's a wonderful thing. We can fight against social justice. We can, I don't know, save the rainforest. There's a lot of good things that we can give our energies and our time to. But if Jesus isn't central, we're missing the main thing. It's interesting I was looking ahead as we preach through Ephesians. We're going to be preaching a lot of um, practical sermons. We're going to hit topics such as how to break bad habits or break patterns in your life that are, that are causing problems. We're going to preach a message on how to improve your communication, how to forgive, how to deal with anger and bitterness, how to make your marriage stronger, how to survive raising kids. There's a lot of practical stuff coming in the book of Ephesians, but every topic that I just mentioned, it's in Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6. It follows Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And in Ephesians 1, we're taught that our identity is in Christ, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. In 2, we're reminded that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God being rich in mercy. And as the book transitions from the first three chapters of setting our identity and explaining what the gospel is, chapter four starts, therefore walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Paul doesn't get to the practical things until he gives you the doctrine, the fact that Jesus is central. Often I'll find myself meeting with a couple or an individual and uh, they will be here. They have come to church. There's an issue. Maybe it's a marriage issue. Maybe it's a financial issue. Maybe it's a extended family issues, a myriad of things that it could be. And they want the pain to stop. They want relief from the circumstances that they find themselves in. And sometimes I can give practical advice as it relates to marriage or communication, those type of things that can give, maybe like put a Band-Aid on a hemorrhage. Maybe give some relief, but the truth is you can't get to the core of the problem until the person is willing to make Jesus central in their lives. Jesus needs to be more than something that is just a part of our lives. He needs to be the thesis statement. He needs to be the focus of our lives. I was out last week with uh, 
my granddaughters, and we were uh, driving a golf cart kind of through the woods. We were looking for deer. And as I was driving, I wasn't, I didn't have binoculars, but my granddaughters, I'd given both of them binoculars, Cal's oldest daughters. And I was like, hey, use these to find the deer. And as I'm driving around, I'm like, hey, there's some deer over there. They're like, where? We don't, can't see them. I'm like, I'm 57 years old. I'm spotting these things without binoculars. Like, is there an issue here? I couldn't say that because they're my granddaughters. But you know, like, like what's the problem? And, and what I realized is I gave them binoculars but I didn't teach them how to focus the binoculars. They didn't know about the little dial on the top that would bring everything into focus. So they're sitting there looking, everything's blurry. And I'm like, hey, hey, wait a minute. Up here, take your gloves off, just slide down. They're like, oh, there's deer everywhere. Okay, got it. They're, they're really close. No, it's the, you know, I got to walk them through it. Sometimes we go through life that way. There's not a lot of focus. Jesus needs to be central church in Ephesus knew of repentance. They didn't see Jesus as the remedy. Paul corrects that immediately. The question I would ask is, as you look at your resolutions, as you look at the things that you're looking to see happen, maybe in 2022 or in the coming months or years, is Jesus central in those ambitions? Are, are you starting every day saying, Lord, I, I just want to do the things that are pleasing to you today. It's not that complicated. And praying maybe, Lord, don't, as a church, as individuals in our family, don't let us go anywhere that you're not leading. We don't want to take a step into an area that, that you won't be. Is Jesus central? Here's the second thing. Hopefully you'll see this in the text in verse 6. We know that the gospel is prevailing when lives are transformed. Look at verse 6. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 men in all. You are going to see throughout this passage that when the gospel is prevailing, one of the things that you're going to see is that lives are transformed. Now, a reminder, we've taught on the sign gifts, the idea of prophecy and healing and speaking in tongues. We taught directly on these. That's not the intent of my message this morning. I just want to remind you that the book of Acts is a historical book. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. It's explaining how the gospel advanced. And in the book of Acts, when you see the gospel advance to people who haven't heard the gospel before, first from the Jews, then to the Gentiles, as it spread through Asia Minor, the gospel is accompanied by miraculous signs and gifts, very similar to Jesus's ministry when he would go Miracles validated that he was who he said that he was. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. But my focus is just simply this this morning. When somebody or when the gospel is prevailing, Jesus is central and you see life transformation. You're going to see it throughout this chapter. I don't want to park here for a long time now. I just want to drive the idea that when the gospel is prevailing, lives are transformed. Um, we've seen that in the history of this church. We have seen couples come into this church, get saved, and we have seen dramatic life transformation happen over and over again. It's funny. If you talk to um, secular psychologists, if you talk to people in our community, many believe that people don't really change. That you can modify behavior, maybe just a couple degrees this way or a couple degrees this way, but in truth, people really don't change. 
And here's what I would say. The purpose of the church is to make disciples, and in making disciples, you're going to transform lives. And if we don't believe that people can change, what are we doing here? Like, like what's the purpose of gathering as a church? The purpose that we come together as a church is to lift high the name of Jesus, to glorify God, and to make disciples to see lives transformed. When the gospel is prevailing, you will see Christ at the center. You will see lives transformed. Here's a third thing. When the gospel is prevailing, opposition is present. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this point. Look at verse 8. It says this, And when Paul entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So in that verse, if you have a Bible, take a pen and just circle a word. It's important in verse 8. The word that I want you to circle is boldly. If you're following it along on your phone, I can't help you, okay? But, but the key word that I want to focus on this morning in this verse is the word boldly. Well, why boldly? Like, like, well, like why does Paul have to be bold as he proclaims the gospel? Well, you'll see it in verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So here's what happens. Paul goes into Ephesus. He's arguing in the synagogue, the Jewish center of of worship. But it doesn't take long for opposition to arrive. He got there in verse 1. By verse 8, he's opposed and has to change the location of where he's preaching. It's interesting, Acts 19, Paul is starting his third missionary journey. Chapters 16 through 18 record his second missionary journey, and his second missionary journey starts with a dispute. On Paul's first missionary journey, he had traveled with a guy, and in traveling on that first missionary journey, a dispute arises between Paul and Barnabas, his traveling companion, over John Mark. John Mark is deserted Paul and Barnabas during their first missionary journey. So the second missionary journey is set to begin. Paul is like, no way are we taking John Mark. Barnabas is like, for sure he's coming with us. And it's recorded that a sharp dispute occurred between Paul and Barnabas so that they separated. They went different ways. There's conflict between partners in the gospel Paul grabs another guy, Silas. Timothy is going to join them later on the second missionary journey. And it's interesting. You can just follow them as they go from city to city. They visit in chapter 16, the city of Philippi. And guess what Paul finds there? Conflict. He's jailed. And while he's in jail in Philippi, there's a story of an earthquake and God using that situation to show himself powerful. Many were saved because of what happened in Philippi. He goes from Philippi to Thessalonica. When he gets to Thessalonica, conflict. Acts 17, verse 5, reads this, but the Jews were jealous in Thessalonica, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring the disciples out to the crowd. It says this in verse 6, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So while he's in Thessalonica, Paul's experiencing persecution. He's experiencing conflict. So the disciples say, no, you can't stay here. Go to the next city, Berea. And he gets to Berea. And when he arrives there, surprise, surprise, conflict. 
We're told in Berea that when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So Paul leaves Berea. He goes to Athens. Guess what? Athens conflict. It says in verse, Acts 17, verse 32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead in Athens, some of them mocked. Then he went to Corinth. When he got to Corinth, Acts 18, 6, he was opposed and vilified. He was reviled by the Jews there. And in Acts 18, 12, we, re- we read, The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before a tribunal. Everywhere Paul goes in trying to advance the gospel, he runs into conflict. If you make Jesus central, if you see the Holy Spirit move in your life, expect conflict. And, and, and then here's the problem. None of us like conflict. Conflict is something all of us would like to avoid. I hope that 2022 has less conflict than 2020 or 2021. But the problem is conflict is always present when the gospel is prevailing. It's interesting, in the history of harvest, we've often taught principles like choose to sin, choose to suffer, or that blessing follows obedience. And these are true principles. Cal, a couple weeks ago, when he was preaching through the Advent season, he took us to Galatians 6, verses 7 and 9, where it says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he's going to also reap. And then verse 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The, the concept there is what you sow, you will reap. If you are obedient, you'll reap blessing. If you choose to sin, you'll choose to suffer. Same principles are taught in Psalm, uh, uh, or the first Psalm. It says in Psalm 1 1, Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of this wicked, who does not, I'm sorry, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That man, and we're told, in all that he does, he will prosper. Verse 4 of Psalm 1 says, it's not so with the wicked. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. And then it closes in verse 6, but the way of the wicked will perish. Blessings follow obedience, choose to sin, choose to suffer. As as Israel, back in the Old Testament, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's recorded in both books that before Israel entered the land of Canaan, Moses took them, gathered them, and said, hey, listen, if you follow God, if you are obedient as you enter the land of Canaan, you will experience blessing. But if you choose to rebel against the Lord, you are going to see your life with blessings and curses that you're going to suffer. These are biblical principles. And here's my concern Sometimes when we hear blessing follows obedience and choose to sin, choose to suffer, we we make a leap mentally. And what we believe is that if we're being faithful Christians, if we're being obedient, then our life is going to be smooth sailing. It's kind of this prosperity mentality that, well, we're going to not get sick and we're going to make a lot of money and we're not going to have any relational conflict. And my problem with that line of thinking, because sometimes what we do is we see conflict in our lives and we're like, that's not supposed to be there. We see conflict in someone else's lives. We're saying, well, that isn't consistent with what I thought faithfulness would lead to. Here would be my question. Test that thinking against what you see taught by Jesus and what is experienced in the lives of the the men and women that God uses throughout the Old and New Testament. 
When the gospel is advancing, you always see conflict. Jesus says this in John 16, he said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John 15, verse 18 says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. None of us like conflict. When we find ourselves in conflict, it's not comfortable. And I think when we find ourselves in conflict, it's natural for us to ask the question, why are we here? What's caused this conflict? And let's just be really honest. Let's be straightforward here. Conflict isn't always caused by being obedient to the Lord. You can get into a lot of conflict just by being a jerk. So let's test the theory. Wives, have you ever found yourself in marital conflict with your husband? And it's not because he's being godly, but it's because he's being a jerk. Just raise your hand if you found yourself there, okay? Yeah, there's some hands going up really slowly as they sit next to their husbands. If if you're going to raise it boldly, and I was going to call on you and like give me an example, but we'll avoid that this morning, okay? We don't want more marital conflict. But I think you've got to ask yourself a question. Is this something that I brought on myself because I'm a jerk? But the main goal of the Christian life, and we don't want to fall into a pattern of thinking that when we see conflict, we always assume that there's something wrong, that we've done something wrong. Where the gospel goes, when the gospel prevails, it's always accompanied by opposition. As a follower of Jesus Christ, if your main goal is to avoid conflict, can I make some suggestions on how to do that? If conflict avoidance is your main thing, I don't want conflict, here's two great suggestions. Don't be bold. Let your life be transformed just a little bit, not a lot. Because when it's transformed a lot, then you stand out. That creates problems. Um, Keep Jesus to yourself. Let him be the remedy just for your sin. Don't talk about others to others about their sin. That will avoid conflict. Just don't be bold. Maybe just choose a different religion. Be a universalist. Nobody ever hates those guys. Be a secular humanist. Be a Buddhist or Hindu. They seem nice. They don't get into a lot of fights. Like, part of the deal of being a follower of Jesus Christ is understanding that the gospel, this idea that we need a savior because we fall short and because we're sinful, that is a, well, the New Testament calls it an offense. When the gospel is prevailing, there's always going to be conflict. I don't want to take a lot of time on this. We're going to stop at verse 20. But if you were to go from verses 21 through 41 through the end of Acts 19, all you see is another occurrence of conflict. It says in verse 23, about this time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. So this gospel is going to churches starting. No little disturbance. I think if I understand the language, that means it was a big disturbance. There's a big disturbance in Ephesus as the gospel is proclaimed. And what happens is some men worried about their finances, they have self-interest, they're scared that their idle business is going to go down if the gospel advances, they rile up the crowd, they make false claims against the disciples, and it grows into a mob context. We're told that the mob gathers in the theater or the amphitheater, the amphitheater in Ephesus, house 24,000 people. 
And now you've got a mob gathered in that theater. We're told in verse 28 that they're enraged and crying out. Verse 29, they're confused. In verse 30, they're aggressive, they're dangerous. I love verse 32. It says this, Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't know why they'd come together. Awesome. Just a mob. Just confused. In verse 33, it says Alexander, he's one of the followers of Jesus there, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. No ability to make a defense. The mob won't listen. And as I was reading this, I started to think, it's interesting, 2,000 years ago, mobs gathered in theaters. I just don't think that happens much anymore. I think they gather on social media. You need to understand something. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we live in a culture that will bully and cancel any worldview that doesn't align with what they want to embrace. Living a life that is a testimony to, the, to this Jesus that we're following is going to lead to some opposition, to some conflict. And I would just say this, I would rather be hated by the world on account of being a follower for Jesus Christ than suffer the regret and consequences of choosing to sin and miss the blessings that follow obedience. In Hebrews eleven twenty four, it says this, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. In verse 25, Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, hear this, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to a reward. So in verses 8 and 9, Paul has now hit opposition. He has to leave the synagogue. He goes into a, a Gentile hall and this preaching and reasoning there. I love verse 10. Look what it says. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So what was happening to Paul was opposition. What was happening, if you pull your focus back, if you look at it from 30,000 feet, God was using the opposition that Paul was encountered with to spread the gospel even further. Now, not only was the Jewish population of Ephesus and Asia Minor hearing the gospel, but because now he was reasoning with Gentiles, God was using the opposition to accomplish his purposes, to spread the gospel. The gospel was prevailing. Just one more point. Maybe you're listening today and you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I have no opposition in my life because of my faith. And as I look back over 2020 and 2021, I haven't seen a lot of transformation. I haven't seen a lot of growth. And Jesus really isn't central. He's a part of my life. I come to church, but I wouldn't call him central. I'm not facing opposition, and I'm not seeing a lot of life transformation. Here's a fourth thing that I want you to consider. Maybe examine yourself. Here's a fourth sign that the gospel is prevailing. Our faith is our own. Our faith is our own. It's interesting when we started the church, we were part of a fellowship of churches. A lot of churches that had been planted out of a church called Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. And, and they would train pastors. Some of them would come do a residency for nine months and others would come for four months or three months. Um, Cal, Chris, and I in 2010 went down and did a residency for three and a half days. 
And that caused conflict. Because all the other pastors were like, why do they get to skate through here in just three and a half days? And it's interesting, in that residency, and then we were loaded up when we left there with a, lot of, with a lot of books to help us plant a church. There were books like, this is called the Launch Playbook. And this is the Preaching Lab Playbook. They only gave us a copy of that. They didn't even bind it. Coaching Playbook on Counseling. The Assimilation Playbook. The Pastor's Wife Playbook. The Worship Playbook. All of those contain good information. All of those give some practical wisdom in how to plant a church. But here's the problem. As I look back, you don't plant a church by running somebody else's play. There are about 125 churches in this fellowship. When we started, the fellowship no longer exists. It's more Alarming than that is, I would say, somewhere between a third and half of the pastors that were part of that fellowship, they're not in ministry anymore. And about a third of those churches don't exist because you don't plant a church by running someone else's play. And as a follower of Jesus, you don't grow, you don't see your life transformed, and Jesus doesn't become central by attaching yourself to somebody else's faith. It's dangerous. You need to make sure your faith is your own. Look at verse 11. It says this, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. By the way, the opposition to the gospel when it prevails is not just horizontal with other people. It's actually spiritual warfare. We're going to discuss that in Ephesians 6. It says in in verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, like there's three words I don't even know what to do with. Itinerant Jewish exorcists. Apparently, demon possession was such a problem in this day that guys were traveling around, maybe for profit, maybe with good motive to, to help bring relief to people that were suffering from demon oppression, but there were itinerant Jewish exorcists who undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And this is what they would say. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Look at verse 14. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now I was reminded that when I was nine or 10 years old, I got in my first fight. And I've been in one fight, I think my entire life. That's a whole nother thing, but a fist fight. I went to a local football game at our local high school, Lake Park High School outside of Chicago. I was about nine or 10 years old. I was wearing a brand new Bears football cap that my parents had given me. And the last thing my mom said is, don't lose that hat. I was scatterbrained. She knew it. So I got to the end of the game and I realized that I didn't have my hat. This was a problem. But there was another kid wearing a Bears hat that I thought might have been mine. So I accused him of stealing my hat because I couldn't go home without the hat. And this created an argument which led to pushing, and the details are sketchy, but I remember throwing a punch and running. 
But I'm going to claim I won the fight. Do you know why I think I won the fight? Because I got home with the hats. In Acts, no winner is declared in this fight between the seven sons of Sceva and the man with the evil spirit. But here's what I think just happened. If the fight ends with you running, wounded, and the other guy has all of your clothes, I'm going to assume that you lost. It's dangerous when your faith is not your own. It's dangerous when you're just going through the motions. There's a lot of reasons to come to church. There's a lot of reasons to claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you, it just makes marriage easier. Maybe it just makes... Maybe it just becomes part of your routine. Maybe it helps you deal with the guilt and shame. There's a lot of different reasons. It's dangerous when your faith is not your own. It's not just dangerous back in Acts. It's dangerous for us today. Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are some of the most terrifying verses in all of the New Testament. Jesus is saying there will be people that have convinced themselves they've, not only are they imposters, they've fooled themselves. They believe that they're true followers of Jesus Christ, but in essence, they don't know him. So so how do we know that our faith is our own? How do we know that we aren't self-deluded, that we're not just imposters going through the motion? Well, look at the text. I think it gives us two really great indications. Verse 17, this issue with the sons of Sceva, says this, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It was lifted up. And also many of those who were Now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Here's the first point. If you want to make sure that your faith is your own, are you dragging sin into the light? Are you honest about yourself? Are you trying to defeat sin? The things that God is bringing to your mind that the Holy Spirit is saying, this needs to change. Are you doing that? Are you serious? Are you just wearing a mask? Sin is dragged into the light. And then look at verse 19. Here's the second one. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and it was found to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Hey, how can we be sure that our faith is our own? Sin is dragged into the light. And here's the second one. Jesus is most treasured. Right back to the first point. Jesus is central. We know that our faith is real when we're like, I'm not scared what anybody else thinks. I want to deal with my sin. And secondly... Following Jesus is most treasured. I don't care what it costs. He's going to be central. It's interesting. Just as I close in John 6, Jesus is teaching. And he's got some hard things that he has to say to his disciples. And what we see is in John 6, Jesus in his life is experiencing conflict. He says some hard things and it says in John 6, 66, and after, many, and after this, these hard sayings, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One from God. 
See, when we make Jesus central, if we want to see our lives transformed, I don't have another savior that I can point to. I don't have another remedy that I can show you that will reconcile us to a holy God. It's my prayer for our church. It's my prayer for my life in 2022 that the word of God will increase and prevail mightily. This is how you know that it's happening. Let's pray that when we reflect on 2022, that we'll see God accomplish and prevail mightily, mightily with his word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this study in Ephesus. I pray that it'll be used to uh, transform lives. Father, teach us to make you the center of our lives. It is who you are. It is what you deserve because you are the center of all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.